Well, usually I just read Scripture and start the sermon, but after that I have to ramble around a little bit. Uh, and let me do that kind of get used to the auditorium. Um, I have appreciated your preacher. On CD, I listened to a lot of his preaching through the book of Revelation in that series. My hat's off to anybody that will tackle that to start with. And second of all, he did a splendid job. And uh, I've known of Mount Tabor Church for quite some time, and uh, I've been here a few times before, way back, and have appreciated it. Like all southern Indiana churches, you have good music <clears throat> and friendly people. And it's good to uh, have a friend here, uh, Phil the Master. I've known Phil for quite a while. He shines a little better this morning than usual because he has a granddaughter with him. And, uh, of course, my wife, Pat, is with one of her friends. Uh, you're starting a series on intimacy, and uh, Pat and I are kind of known for holding hands. We do a lot of hand-holding, even though we've been married 68 years. If I let go, she starts shopping. That's a real reason, you know. <laughs> I was in a great Sunday school class a while, a while ago, and, uh, oh, I'll just ramble around. Everything is great here. I appreciated hearing you sing, The King is Coming. I hadn't heard that congregationally for many, many years, and I appreciated it. And something else, brother, I had forgotten that you could sing while sitting down. I'm in one of these churches where we stand all the way through, and I get so tired sometimes, I wonder, when's it going to be over? And, and that's not the way to be. So thank you. Very, very good service. I've appreciated it. I want to read to you from um, the book of Acts, chapter 17, and then from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Apostle Paul is preaching in Athens. Uh, he is preaching to the Greek philosophers. Listen to what he says. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Can you imagine saying that to a bunch of philosophers now? In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. By that man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And then from the book of Hebrews, about the 27th verse, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, the Christ was sacrificed once, to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sins, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. I like the King James translation of the beginning of that passage. It is appointed once for a man to die, and after this, the judgment. Let me lead you in prayer. Father, I pray that everyone here 
will get something good for their soul from this message, that you'll do that through your Holy Spirit. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Trying to think of the words of an old poem that goes something like this. When the great business plants of our cities have turned out their last finished works, and the merchants have filled their last order and dismissed every last tired clerk, and the banks have raked in their last dollar and paid out their last dividend, and the judge of the earth wants a hearing and asks for a balance, what then? Well, you know what then. There's going to be a judgment, a real judgment. And as I approach the subject of judgment, I find that most people are like I am. To approach this subject, they have to unlearn a great many things before they can learn the truth of judgment from the biblical standpoint. Uh, I grew up in a family that uh, was not Christian to many great extent. Some of my relatives were, but not many of them. And I'd hear a lot of so-called religious talk. And I was surprised to find out that some of my relatives' favorite passages of Scripture are not even in the Bible. Yeah, the Bible never says a man's home is his castle. The Bible never says every tub shall set on its own bottom. I grew up thinking that those were really Scriptures. And um, they had a lot of false ideas about the subject of judgment. Uh, they would talk about the fact that uh, maybe God was something like a, a big bookkeeper. That if we do something good, God puts it in this column. We do something bad, God puts it in this column. We die, God draws a line, adds them up, subtracts the smaller from the larger. If we have anything left out over good, we go to heaven. And if it's over bad, we, we go to hell. And I grew up with that idea of judgment. And I have been amazed to find out how many people, even in the church, still have that concept of judgment. So as a result, after World War II, when I became a Christian and entered Bible college to study for the ministry, one of my biggest problems was not learning but unlearning. And I think that may be the problem of a lot of people when it comes to certain biblical subjects. We have to unlearn before we can learn. And so as we approach this, I want to inform you that there are many Bible judgments. Do you know the Bible says that we will judge angels? I haven't heard any sermons on that lately. Are you acquainted with the biblical passage that says that uh, there will be um, the apostles will sit on 12 thrones and they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel? I haven't heard any sermons on that one lately either. But I am going to bring your attention to four different judgments in the Bible. And I really believe that if you go away with a proper understanding of these four, you're going to be fitted to discuss the subject, and you will feel better about it. So the first one, you needn't worry about. It's already happened, and it happened a long time ago. And we call it the judgment of sin, and it happened when Jesus died on that cross. On that cross, he took our sins. He redeemed us. He paid the price. When he said, it is finished, 
He meant everything is finished that could be done to purchase your salvation. I paid the price. And we are to appear before that judgment. I love the third chapter of John. You know, it starts out with the teaching of Jesus to Nicodemus on the new birth. It has in it John 3.16, God so loved the world, and so on. But there's also a passage of Scripture in, 1 John, or in John that goes like this. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And Jesus said that, speaking of the kind of death he would die. Are you familiar with that story? The children of Israel won their way to the promised land. They were out in the wilderness. They started acting like we church members. They complained. They found fault with their leadership. And God seemed to finally take the attitude, I've had it up to here with you people. And he sent a plague of fiery snakes upon them. And people were bitten, and they died. Moses, however, interceded. We always need an intercessor with God. And Moses went before God, and he pleaded for God to take away the plague. By the way, Moses had a way of arguing with God and winning. Don't you try it, but he had a way. Mo Moses really said, Lord, back in Egypt, they're going to get the idea that you don't say what you believe or believe what you say. They won't believe that you keep your promises. They'll say back in Egypt, you just brought us out here to destroy us, not to take us to a promised land. And God said, okay, Moses, I'm going to give you a remedy. You make a snake of brass, and you put it up on a pole, and everybody that is bitten by one of these snakes can go look at that snake of brass on the pole, and they will be healed. There is not a doctor in Indiana that would prescribe that as a cure for snake bite today. But please remember, God doesn't have to deal with our logic system. He does things his way. The point is, it worked. A snake of brass. And that becomes a symbol of the death of Christ on the cross. You see, I challenge you. You read the Old Testament and you will find that every vessel of cleansing in the tabernacle and the temple was made of brass. Brass was always an emblem of cleansing. Uh, the snake was always an emblem of sin. So you have cleansing of sin and Christ dying on the cross to bring that about. And we have to appear before that judgment. You see, uh, Satan's going to accuse me at the judgment. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He will accuse you. But he'll probably look at me and he'll say, hey, hey God, what are you going to do with Ben Merrill? He started out cheating at marbles when he was a kid. He's been a sinner ever since. What are you going to do with him? And God will say, yeah, Satan. But one day he accepted Christ as Savior and the price is paid, he's under the blood, he appeared before the judgment of sin. I grew up on a prairie farm as a kid, and I can remember hearing older people talk about prairie fires. And they would always come around to the fact that if there was a prairie fire, do what the Native Americans 
told them to do, the Indians, set a backfire and move in to the burned off space because, as the American Indian used to say, the fire cannot come where the fire has already been. And we have to remember that judgment can't come where judgment has already been. And when we make Christ our Savior, we appear at the judgment of sin, and we've got to believe that and abide by it. But I want to take you to a second judgment. And this one should be taking place in your own life. And we call this one the judgment of self. As I read the Bible, I become very much aware of the fact that God has two weapons. God has a sword, and God has a rod. God never uses a sword on his own people. He uses the sword on those who refuse to become his people. They are cut off, and they experience the second death. But he will use the rod on his own people because the Bible says that he will chastise or discipline every child that he receives. Now, as you read that, you become very much aware of the fact that that answers a lot of questions. Have you ever been around somebody that says, I just don't understand God. There's old so-and-so out here. He leaves his life as mean as the devil, and yet he's rich and has everything, and I try to be, I try to be right with God, and I don't have anything. Well, you see, God is not necessarily dealing with old so-and-so right now. He's not in the family. God will deal with him at the last judgment, but he's not necessarily dealing with him now. But if you have accepted Christ as Savior, God is dealing with you right now. And if you are a part of God's family and sin and refuse to repent in some way or another, God will use a rod on you. He will chastise you. That doesn't mean that you'll lose your job. It doesn't mean that some member in your family is going to die. It does mean that chastisement may come in the fact that you don't get answers to prayer. It may mean that you are suddenly stricken with the knowledge that you are wasting your life. It may be the fact that uh, you just don't have the assurance of your salvation. But in many ways, God will chastise us until we judge ourselves and repent and confess our sins and move on with God. In the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus told several, seven parables. Now, they are many times referred to as the kingdom parables. All of them are to some extent prophetic. The second parable is the parable of the wheat and the tares. We need to pay attention to it concerning this point, the judgment of self. Jesus said, guy went out and sowed wheat. Enemy came in by night. Notice he's called an enemy. Enemy came in by night and oversowed the field with tares. The wheat and tares were growing together, and the man's servants discovered this. They came to the man and said, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to pull out the tares? Remember what the man said. No, don't pull out the tares or you'll uproot the wheat also. 
Let them stand together until the harvest, and then there will be a separation. We'll put the wheat in the barn. We'll burn the tares in the fire. Now, that answers some questions. First of all, we need to get a picture of what tares are. Our modern translations translate them as weeds, but they are not just weeds. In the Mideast, a tare was even more than what farmers called darnel. Tares were referred to as bastard wheat. They grow like wheat. They look like wheat. They simply do not head out and produce anything. Now, have you ever heard somebody give this old rotten, corny excuse, I don't go to church because there are too many hypocrites there. Okay, here's your answer. You challenge them, hey, you come and point them out and we'll kick them out. <laughs> and then show him this passage of Scripture. If you pull out the tares, you'll uproot the wheat also. Hey, we've got a lot of men around here. Men, Let's say that you are just wonderful Christians and your wife is a hypocrite. And we decide to put her out of the church. And you'd probably leave too. You go to pull out the wheat, the tares, you uproot the wheat. God said, let them grow together till the harvest. He said, I'll take care of it. That's my job, not yours. So shut up about hypocrites. I want to say that gently and friendly and kindly, but shut up about hypocrites, you know. Uh, we see that taught here. But uh, God is going to deal with those that are not his children. And um, according to God's word, he will deal. But don't go around doing Satan's work for him. Judge yourself. Judge your own faults, confess them before God, and stay in communion with Him. So I've talked about the judgment of sin that's already happened on the cross, the judgment of self that ought to be taking place in your life now. But what about the judgment of works? And we need to get a biblical understanding of this. I go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to start reading with uh, uh, about the 13th verse. Just listen to this. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now, there's a lot of teaching there. Number one, it says you've got to build on the foundation that you receive by Jesus Christ. Christ is the only foundation. If you haven't received Christ as Savior, you don't have a foundation. But he says once you 
have the foundation, you build your life on it, and some people do things that are like gold, silver, and precious stones. Other people do things that are like wood, hay, and straw. And probably for all of us, our life works are a mixture of both. He says the fire will judge them. Wood, hay, and straw are burned up. Gold, silver, precious stones are purified by fire. And so some of our works will not stand. But we will be judged according to our works. And if our works stand, we have a reward. And then he makes a very peculiar statement here. And uh, I really don't like this statement very well because it doesn't agree with my uh, opinion. But it's still biblical. He says there are some who are saved as only by fire. And in the original language, the Greek language that this was originally written in, it has the, the, the uh, ability to paint word pictures. And this is the picture of a man who has had his house burned down. And he got out, but he lost everything else. And some people will be saved that way, the Bible says. They have little or nothing in the way of reward, but still they are saved. And I know you're sitting there and you're going to say, Preacher, explain more of that to me, and I don't have the ability to do it. I don't comprehend it, but that's what it is saying, and we had better remember it. But let me illustrate it. Let's say that uh, you go downtown in Salem tomorrow morning, and your preacher Tony is sitting there, and he's eating breakfast, and that guy can eat. <laughs> but let's say he's really eating breakfast. He's ordered about everything they have on the menu, and he's eating, and he's celebrating. And I, I say to him, uh, what are you doing, Tony? He said, man, I'm celebrating. I say, what are you celebrating? Well, the parsonage burned down last night. He said, I lost everything in it. Said, I lost my wife, Leah, lost my two kids, but I got out, and man, am I happy. I am really celebrating. No, that wouldn't be true. That's not a time of celebration. Uh, some people say, boy, if I just barely make it, I'll celebrate. No, I don't think you will. The point of it is you don't have anything to celebrate. You've lost a lot of things. And that's the way it's going to be in the judgment of Christians for many of us, I think. The wood, hay, and straw of our life will be burned up. We'll not have that much to celebrate. We really did not do that much for Jesus Christ. Again, I'm speaking a little beyond my comprehension. I know this. It says in... Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the 10th verse. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And he is writing that to Christians. He is writing that to the church. So, look at it in this way. 
guy believed that uh, in a dream. He believed that he was building himself a ladder to heaven. That every time he did something good, he added another rung to the ladder. Finally, the ladder reached into heaven. And he started climbing, and he thought, ha, ha, I'm fooling them back at the church. I'm getting to heaven by what I did. And he gets at the top of the ladder, and Jesus is there, and Jesus quotes Scripture and says, I am the door to the sheepfold. If any man enters in by any other way, the same is a thief and a robber, and he is kicked out. Now, you're only going to get there by Christ. But yet, there is a judgment of Christians, of our works, to determine our reward. It's not a judgment to determine whether you go to heaven or hell. Forget that. If you are in Christ, you are going to be where Christ will be. It is a judgment, though, to determine your reward. And some of us may end up rather poor in that. Uh, don't ever take the idea that there are no tears in heaven. The book of Revelation doesn't say that. It says that God wipes them away. They had to be there before God can wipe them away. And I find myself wondering if Christians don't shed tears in that judgment because of our failures to do what we had opportunity to do. And we are saved. God wipes away the tears. But I just simply cannot grasp this idea of rewards, and God will reveal that to us. i got to hurry on to this last judgment. We've talked about the judgment of sin that happened on the cross, the judgment of self that should happen in your own life, the judgment of works. Yes, Christians are going to be resurrected and stand before God in that judgment. But there is a last judgment. And it is a judgment of unsaved people. And I'm going to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and the 11th verse. Listen, as I read this, will you listen for a play on words? The word book in the singular and the word books in the plural. Will you listen for those two words? Okay, here we go. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is a book of life. 
If you are in Christ, your name is in that book. You've accepted him as Savior. For all of us, there are the books of works. And we will be judged according to our works. But for those who did not lay the foundation, who never received Christ as Savior, their name is in the book of works, but not in the book of life. So they are judged according to their works to determine their punishment in hell. You may say, preacher, sounds like you're preaching degrees of reward and degrees of punishment. I know it, and I don't like that. But I have to do it that way because that's the way it is in the Bible. Degrees of reward and degrees of punishment. But you see, never is there that idea that God brings all people together and judges them according to their works to make the decision whether they go to heaven or hell. That's the general judgment idea not found in the Bible. There is a resurrection of Christians, and there is a celebration, and we're in Christ, and we're judged by our works for reward. And there is a resurrection of non-Christians, and they stand before God. Their names are not in the book of life. They are judged by their works, and they are sent to hell. I'd like to make just a few comments. Go back to what the Apostle Paul said. I'll quote it from the old King James Version. He said, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but not anymore. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. By whom? By that man whom he has ordained, in that he gave him assurance of all among all men, in that he raised him from the dead. Will you see three things out of that text? Number one, the day is already appointed. It'll come off right on schedule. Number two, the judge is already appointed. And the judge is Jesus Christ, the one God raised from the dead. That's why it's so important that you do the right thing with Jesus. He's going to be your judge. But do you see something else? Repentance is commanded. He said, God commands all men everywhere to repent. And that word repentance carries with it, you change your mind from what is wrong to what is right. That's the basic idea of repentance. We used to have an old preacher in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in our brotherhood. His name was Burton Doyle. He wrote some books, and he wrote a lot for the Christian Standard and the publishing. He was one of the first men in our brotherhood to write a book on Bible prophecy. I think he wrote that book about the end of the 1920s. And if you could get a copy of it, it's right up to date today. My wife's father, my father-in-law, was an elder in the church. He knew Burton Doyle. 
Uh, I heard a lot of stories about Burton Doyle. But this is one I just want to leave you with. He had in his congregation a young man that was an attorney, but never married. A rather outstanding attorney, but he was just shy around the ladies, and he didn't date, and he didn't marry. Also in his church, there was a young widow in her late 20s. Uh, she had married, her husband died, and it was common knowledge that she had been cheated out of a great inheritance. But she didn't seem to need the money, and she didn't do anything about it. Burton Doyle said, you could see a little chemistry between this young lawyer and this young widow, but it never seemed to get any further than going out for a cup of coffee after Sunday night church. But a number of times that attorney said to her, I would gladly take your case to court free of charge and win for you what is rightfully yours. And she always put it off. And then the day came when she had an illness and there were problems in her family and she needed money. And she went to the young attorney and said, uh, I'm going to take you up on that offer. You take my case to court and represent me. And he said, Madam, I cannot do it. She said, but you have always offered to do it. He said, Madam, I cannot do it now. She said, why? He said, my offer was made when I was an attorney. I have just received an appointment to the judgeship. All I can do now is hear your case presented and pass judgment on it. You want to meet Jesus as your attorney, your intercessor in heaven, your advocate? All those words are words for attorney. They're biblical words. You will meet him as judge. But man, wouldn't it be great to have the same guy as judge as you have for an attorney? And that's exactly what the Bible says. And it is one thing or the other. I hope that I've stimulated your thinking about the subject of judgment. And I hope that you'll just not pass this off. But my big hope is, hey, we're doing works. They're like gold, silver, precious stone, wood, or hay, hay or stubble. But my big question is, have you laid the foundation? Are you in Christ? Have you made Jesus your Savior? I want to pray. Father, as, uh, as we mull over this subject, and as we get ready to extend an invitation, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in the lives of people that are present, and that you give them a strong impulse to answer this invitation. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.